0: Refugees on Air podcast is recorded and produced on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches and on which SIN's partner organisations stand. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hi everyone, you're listening to Refugees on Air. Um, I'm Sarah. And I'm Maya. And today we've got Grace um, on the phone with us. She's established citizen Tasmania and she is in her final year of law. So, Grace, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to chat with you.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation. I love your podcast. I love, I love this, what you're trying to do and are doing already. Um, and I can't wait for a good
0: conversation. Thank you and us as well. Why don't you start off by telling us what your background is and what your journey was like to Australia?
1: Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I was born in Ghana, so that's in West Africa, mm-hmm. um, the capital city is Accra. My parents were fleeing a 10-year civil war in Sierra Leone at the time, so they became stateless because of what was happening in their home country. So I spent a significant, if not, I I would say all of my memories of my childhood was in a refugee camp in Ghana, West Africa, and that was just my norm. I, I kind of lived in a cultural bubble, so my parents were Sierra Leone, which was a neighboring country in West Africa, that's close to Ghana as well, but growing up with two million parents in a Ghanaian country, like, there's obviously several layers of discrimination because they weren't Ghanaian citizens. We were not really offered citizenship there. We were just kind of waiting temporarily for somebody to accept us. And it's, it's really interesting because I never had a strong conception of being stateless. i was just like well this is my home I was born here pretty fine I think I was fine hanging out with my friends so I never had a really strong theoretical framework of my refugee status because I wasn't an adult but I experienced the instability that my parents went through living in a country that's you know obviously limited rights and access to healthcare care and medicare poverty in general um but growing up I just kind of like accepted that as a reality until one day, I found out with my dad that uh, the Australian government was directed at our family. Uh, so it's almost like getting drawn in a lottery sometimes with these things, mm-hmm. and that you know we were chosen to be settled in Australia. And it was quite shocking for me because I had my thing going on with my friends. I had my dog. <laughs> I had a, it was—it probably was not a healthy dog, but um, <laughs> I had my dog child, You know, why are we going to this place? What's going on? And it—it it happened in such a fast time frame that I never had a moment to like say goodbye to everyone to say like and just like say that I'm leaving this home, that I knew. Like, I was. Eight, I believe turning nine, so I already had a strong identity of who I was and what I wanted because at that age, you know some things about life. At least I thought I did as an eight-year-old. We moved directly into regional Australia, Tasmania, and Los So I spent the other half of my childhood in, like, a regional town with twenty thousand people, and I can honestly say it was just cultural shock, like I was in culture shock the whole time growing up, I was I was really disorientated. I I think that now, and I think my strongest memories are always in West Africa because I think coming to in Tasmania and resettling in Australia is almost like it, it was so traumatic that it was kind of like I blunted out those memories because I was. Like, oh, what is going on? Why is it so cold? I actually don't like this at all. I, really, I didn't like it. I found it really, really challenging mm. wrapping my head around a different way of being, different way of speaking English, um, a different way of engaging. I struggled to resettle and sometimes wonder like if I struggled as a kid, I don't know, what would my parents have been doing? What are most adults and what are most people seeking asylum doing when they're trying to reorientate themselves around a new country? I spent my whole childhood, like early teenagehood, in Launceston. Because we only have one university in Tasmania, I moved to Hobart to study law. And I've lived in Hobart ever since. And i seem to just be a content country girl who's not really interested in big city living, um, though I have lived in Indonesia briefly for a while and I found it to be overwhelming, but I am pretty content living in Tasmania. I think it's one of the most beautiful parts of Australia and I'm now acclimatised to the weather, so I'm not as grumpy as I used to be when I was there. Mm-hmm.
0: And that is always very important. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, that leads us kind of perfectly to our next question, which is about your, you know, your study life and... Why did you decide to go down the law pathway? I it seemed
1: like a good idea at the time <laughs> because <laughs> I really like talking. <laughs> I really enjoy um, arguments. I was like, I like arguing with people, mm-hmm. friendly arguments. Um, I was obsessed with debating in high school. Like I just love debating culture. I don't know why. I guess I was a bit bored. <laughs> but, I, you know, I spent time around a group of, I wouldn't call us nerds because I think that's a bit derogatory, but, you know, we're the classic nerds who would spend time reading together. Mm-hmm. We would talk about what, what we were reading and we're interested in politics and philosophy and broader social issues. So I just thought, what's a field that's expansive enough, that's challenging enough for me to be able to, I guess, understand a lot about how society is structured, but also actually be able to offer some tools to support vulnerable people? Because um, as I started to grow up, um, I went back to my parents' home country. It's it's really difficult because my relationship with Sierra Leone doesn't really... I was never born there. I've only been there once, and my whole childhood was in Ghana, so it's really hard to say that that's my home. But I had this amazing experience where, at 15, I travelled back to the maternal homeland in West Africa. I practised or I worked in a legal clinic for women who are escaping violence, and I dealt with a client. I dealt with a case where a young woman had been... um, sexually assaulted in her village for a while, and we were trying to put a protection order so her parents wouldn't take her back and keep her in that really horrible situation and marry her off to her uh, rapist. And I was involved in the whole process of taking it to the court system, getting legal protection. So I, I, I saw how the law had this incredible capacity to be a mediator and to give voice to silent people Um, in a society that mostly, you know, wasn't that friendly to women. And I just thought about it as a powerful tool. And that's when I really decided after coming back from West Africa that I should train in law because training in law would give me the capacity to do the work that I did on a very casual level in Sierra Leone. I'd be able to do it at a broader scale within communities Um, in Australia with a vision of maybe returning back to Africa, but I'm not sure about that considering covid But that was really why I studied law. I saw the law in action and it was powerful and I thought I would like to have that in my life. So here I am.
0: Wow. um, It must have been really emotional for you going back to your homeland after, you know, so many years. Yeah, it was the
1: most amazing experience. I met my grandparents for the first time. And this is what displacement does. This is all of the other complex parts of being a refugee or an asylum seeker. Sometimes you need to get reintroduced into your homeland, mm-hmm. and you meet people in a different way. So you know, meeting your grandparents for the first time and being like, "Whoa, like you are a part of me, and I've never met you before." Hi, mm-hmm. um, I'm Grace. I I come from Logbeston. I think I come from Logbeston, I'm not sure. It's quite confusing. And it was really powerful for me doing that because both my grandparents passed away after I came back. So none of my siblings could ever meet them ever again because we only have one left in the family. But it was just extraordinary to be the only one who could meet my grandparents in the family because my mother couldn't do it. And my father couldn't do it. So I was the one that went there, like almost like the ambassador of the family reconnecting. And it it was, it was incredibly emotional and life changing. And I'm glad I had the opportunity
0: to do it. And unfortunately so many asylum seekers and refugees are robbed of that, you know, that life with family. Um, And sometimes they never actually meet grandparents or, or extended family members.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's almost like it's a real identity shift and that's I think you know when we talk a lot about statelessness and and all of the external elements that it involves but the internal ones can be really quite triggering and hard because where do you find your grounding um all of the people that you know aren't aren't centered in your life giving you an oral history of who you are you kind of have to find it through YouTube or Google I don't know you You have to find your culture and your story through other ways Mm -hmm. of connecting. And, you know, the definition of a refugee is that you cannot return to that country. So for most people, they can never, you know, they can never see that homeland. I was lucky enough that the war eventually settled down um, and I could visit there. But so many people don't have that opportunity and I'm very grateful that I, I had that.
0: How did you go about founding Citizen Tasmania? And can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you faced and how you overcame them?
1: Yeah, um, Citizen is a compilation of, I guess, my approach to social change and social justice. So um, in my third year of law school, I found myself surrounded by all of these um, intelligent people who knew were very smart, very educated, knew the law really well, but almost like lived in an intellectual bubble. And having such a diverse experience of life and just living in a, coming from a different perspective, a huge emphasis for me was like, well, how do you get this information out there to ordinary people? What does it mean for people who don't have access to a world-class legal education? What does what does law mean for people who don't even have the literacy skills to access it and to protect their rights? So I, I started to get really frustrated with like, my legal education in general because I'm just like, well, if I'm just advocating or talking about human rights issues and legislative Policy issues in circles of people that are just as articulate as me and are capable of offering—I don't know—all the solutions that I can offer or come from the same perspective as I do um, intellectually. Then there is no point of doing this work. And so, um, I—you I, know—I've always been creative and taken photos and written and, and made little films. So one of the things. I wanted to do was how do you communicate this broader legal concept of human rights out to people so they understand it and so that it matters for them. It's integrated into their lives and uh, people are empowered because of that knowledge. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, but Australia is not only really a liberal democracy without comprehensive human rights legislation, mm-hmm. which is completely inappropriate, I think. And a lot of people aren't aware of the impact of that on their daily lives and what that means. And so my initial goal with Citizen was to create uh, a film, which is very accessible. Everyone loves to watch and was designed for that with humans. To create a film exploring people's diverse human rights challenges, to personalise the law and to contextualise it for everyday, ordinary people. Mm. That was my goal. And I think I achieved that through the first documentary. It was successful because, for me, how I measure that success is that it touched people. People really understood what the legal issues were, what the social issues were, and they connected with other people. And I thought that there was a strong model of engagement with community that would centre arts, and communications and law in a, in a space that people would find accessible. So I, um, along with a few really beautiful, kind, generous friends, including other law students, um, decided to incorporate as an association called Citizen Tasmania. It was named after the film um, because it had such power and resonance in the, in the community and I ended up as director because I initiated it. As all of young people, I'm, t- I'm 23, and most of the people on our board are under 30. So we kind of struggled through this like this process of establishing it, defining the identity, figuring out how we wanted to support com- the community with all of these skills that we have. Because even if you're a second-year, third-year law student, you know <laughs> 100 times more things than most people do who don't have access to that legal education. Mm-hmm. So it was to figure out how do we support people to engage with human rights? How do we empower them? How do we give them tools? And we've done that. So we, we do that through film screening. We do that through discussions. We hold workshops. And we raise the profile of really significant human rights issues and challenges, and we empower communities to rise to those challenges and actually tackle them. And in 2020, we're working on a major project around domestic violence in Australia. The challenges of most organisations say, so you get money. How do you run sustainably? How do you make sure that you have enough funds to run a projects project and keep building the impact mm-hmm. in the community? We have a very sustainable <laughs> model. I guess we don't have a building per se we tend to work together on significant issues through either research or communications and hopefully making more films which we're doing at the moment but so we have around about 20 volunteers they're all amazing and they all have unique backgrounds and things to offer and I think the most important part of citizen is that Almost everyone's from a different cultural background and a different perspective. I think that's how human rights and community development work needs to be done in collaboration with diversity and with different people. And Yeah, that's my passion project. I love it <laughs> and I hope to continue doing it.
0: You can definitely tell how passionate you are um, when you talk about it. Thank you for sharing that with us and um, I so agree wholeheartedly on how impactful films can be in changing people's perspectives and, yeah, I mean, if you need an extra hand on any of your documentaries, please let me know. <laughs> oh, yes.
1: I like, oh, I will so take that up. Um, I would really love that. And really, when you use the art, as you know, as a filmmaker, it opens up people in a way that a policy document can't. Mm-hmm. Um, you're able to educate on a deeper level and you can do heart work and soul work. Um, a lot of the work that, You know, we do in law is very intellectual, it's very in mind. But when you do film, you have to bring a soul to it, you have to bring a creative lens. And uh, and it's impossible to be creatively rigid, (laughs) it's impossible to make something with people um, whilst just focusing on the head and the head and the head and not the heart. And I guess when people see themselves on screen, I call it the local hero model. When people from their local community see other local people on their screens, they're more connected than, I don't know, watching something in Hollywood. It, it has hits it, hold and that's a way of creating, creating sustainable change as well.
0: What do you think are the key issues that refugees are facing right now and how do you think we can engage the public to understand the significance of these issues?
1: Fundamentally what I see is that the main issue is Dehumanization. So refugees are consistently scapegoated as somebody else's problem or as a problem. They are not seen as human beings who are in difficult situations. And I feel like, you know, when you look at policies around the world, when you look at how, um, you know, major governments um, are responding to refugees, it's always looking at the individual and and blaming the individual for either coming to Australia by boat, crossing a fence. There is a lack of contextual thinking when it comes to refugees. And that is the main issue. Because we all know that displacement and what, what encourages displacement, which is a massive human rights violation, lack of food security, poor governance. These big social problems are not created by just one individual. And when an individual makes the very valid decision to flee a country that is persecuting them, you're, you're, the response is to blame them for wanting a better life and making them the problem instead of looking at the context that they find themselves in, looking at why people are choosing to flee and what needs to be done to create a world that people don't need to flee their homes because it's an incredibly traumatic process doing it in the first place. And most people don't like to do it and don't want to do it. And I think the reality is if we don't address the problem of displacement, which is at a all time high, we are losing focus of what the real problem is. And I think as climate change increases As the whole situation around the instability of certain regions increases, we are going to deal with displacement, and this is going to be a growing norm. And I feel like if we could just start looking at what is causing this, why it's happening, how we can create safe communities for people, how we can ensure that people's human rights are protected, um, they have access to all of the things that they need to, to thrive as human beings, You know, maybe then they wouldn't be attempting to seek refuge. This is a global, local and social issue. I think we dehumanise people either way. Like, we can't help that as as humans. We like to separate ourselves from each other and we like to um, point a finger and blame people because it's much easier than solving the problem. Mm. And the problem is that people aren't safe. Now, if we ask, how do we make people safe? we would have different conclusions. But the problem is we're trying to say, whose fault is it? How can I, like, remove myself from the responsibility of this problem? And unfortunately, refugees are an easy target. They're an easy target to blame um, for economic crisis. They're an easy target to blame for crime. They're an easy target to blame for a lack of social cohesion. I think it's really sad because we're missing the challenge. The real challenge is keeping people safe. And that's not being met when we spend all of our time complaining and keeping people locked up. There's always going to be people seeking refuge um, because there are always going to be human rights violations. So, how we respond to them is really a reflection on who we are as humans and as a society rather than. What their circumstances?
0: Absolutely, yeah. We're just clicking our fingers over here. How do you think we can best engage people to stop the dehumanizing process and to work together to reach a viable solution? It depends on which people
1: you're talking about. So we've got we've got people, you know, on our side in terms of this issue. We've got other refugees that are like. You know, I'm a human being, fit me like a human being. And then we have a cohort of people who agree with them. But then we also have a cohort of people who are in the middle who just don't know about the issue. Mm. And they're not bad people. They don't want to be to humanized. Others they just don't have the capacity to find out about the issue and support it. And then we have people that are just wanting to blame and dehumanize. And that's their choice. They never want to change. They never want to look at the context and provide a solution. They just they just want to attack people. And unfortunately, that's a fact of life. It's always going to be a percentage of people who want to attack people. To engage, we need to focus on the middle. And we need to focus on the people who do not know what is going on. And we need to influence them. To start to understand this issue, so that even if they pledge intellectual support to us, that's enough support to start to shift the global narrative around refugees. And by intellectual support, I mean choosing not to vote or buy into a policy where refugees are dehumanized and scapegoated. If we can get that middle percentage of people to think, actually, no, the problem isn't people, the problem is these large-scale, you know, human rights challenges that need to be addressed, that will be a good thing because they're less likely to buy into the refugees are evil, they're here to... <laughs> I don't want to repeat some of the terrible things that, you know, we have to deal with when it's doing activism. But I think having conversations with the middle, educating the middle, revealing how it's their responsibility to choose what kind of world they want people to live in, is is really critical. The best way to engage the middle is through clear communication and messaging and conversations about what it actually is to be a refugee, why people seek asylum, and what the role of government and you as an individual citizen has to do with, with making the world a more equitable place. And the most important thing we could do is to start making refugees human beings again so that we can treat them like human beings. We can see them as human beings. Because at the moment, the reason why Australia can have this policy, eight years of not giving people a permanent home or keeping people in prison, the reason why it can do that is because a significant part of the middle hasn't expressed enough outrage about the fact that this is going on with human beings that, as citizens, we are kind of consenting to. We're allowing our government, through our vote, to do this. And I think the middle needs to be engaged so we can express this outrage, so we can raise public interest arguments that support and and care for people seeking asylum and refugees.
0: Yeah, and I've noticed that there is a big population in the middle that just simply doesn't know what's going on and I think the media really contributes to that because we don't really hear a lot about the everyday problems in detention centres unless something tragic happens.
1: There's 30,000 asylum seekers who've been living in Australia since 2012 for a, a, around eight years. they are people that already live in this community that are always silent and are shadowed. And I think if the middle knew about these 30,000 people, understood their struggles, understood the discrimination that they're constantly dealing with in our legal system, we would be in a much better place to have a broader, more inclusive and diverse network. More people would be talking about it and there'd be more impact. So we need to figure out how to centre up these voices in these movements so that people start to know about it more.
0: Is there anything else that you wanted to add?
1: Thank you for taking the initiative to build this platform. It's really hard to create and produce things in a consumerist culture where we're passively always consuming things, and I know how hard it is to create something of your own. I'm very proud of this station, and it's... um. It's been really wonderful talking to you
0: too. Thank you so much, Grace. Yeah, we we really appreciate talking to you and getting your insight on this issue and, um, yeah, we hope we can stay connected and we can't wait to see what you get up to in the future. We're both really, really excited.
1: Yeah, well, we can get falafels in Melbourne and talk about it when I can come (laughs) meet you guys. Yes, done deal.